Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, 2022. We're going to be going back more than 50 years, as always, or so often in this show. We're going back to the Second World War. We've done a number of shows uh, over the last few months on the Second World War. Um, many about, indeed, the fact that perhaps the war hasn't quite ended, or at least many of the battles that were involved in the Second World War haven't quite been resolved. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, I visited the U.S. Museum of the Second World War in New Orleans uh, a few months ago. One of the things that strikes me is there were two wars in the Second World War, neither of which, ironically enough, really took place in Western Europe. There was the war on the Eastern Front between Germany and Russia, which determined the outcome of the war, and the war in the Pacific. And we're going to be talking about the war in the Pacific today with my guest, Dan Hampton, the author uh, of a wonderful new book called uh, Valor, the astonishing World War II saga of one man's defiance and indomitable spirit. Um, Dan is joining us from a mountaintop, a uh, lucky man in uh, Colorado. Um, Dan, you're, you're a writer, but you're also um, a soldier. Um, how do you combine these two things? Did you always want to write? When you were fighting? Uh, absolutely not. I, I was a bit busy at the time. I it never really occurred to me that that I would end up in in writing. It happened more or less. You weren't as an making accident. notes but, during uh, during your battles. <laughs> no, no, no time for notes. I was actually a fighter pilot, so I was moving along fairly quickly, uh, and I didn't decide to write. What's the connection between? flying a fighter jet and writing. Are there any or they are entirely separate kinds of activities? Absolutely none that I can think of. I think they're, they're separate uh, entities. I, as I said, I, I did it more or less by accident. I had been a mercenary for several years and was wounded again uh, while coming home to witness the birth of my son. And I decided that I should write something about myself down on paper in case you know anything permanent happened. And that was the genesis of the first book, the Viper Pilot book. And then one thing led yeah, to you, another. You've written a about. number of, of best-selling books on war. Do you think, though, that in a way, your experience in war and battle prepared you to write? Or was it completely useless, at least from the point of view of, of writing? No, not at all. In fact, um, writing is as you no doubt know, is a very lonely, self-motivated profession. I mean, nobody's going to stand over you and make you do it. So indeed, you have to have something within you that makes you sit down and do X amount of work every day. Some people, they can't do that. Uh, and in that regard, the military and the discipline of it was a, was a great deal of help for me. Let's talk about this new book, Valor. As I said, um, there were two wars in the Second World War, one on the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany, the other in the Pacific, essentially between the United States and Japan. Um, how would you describe that war in the Pacific uh, more broadly before we get to, to, to Valor? As I said, um, 
I, I just was in the uh, museum, the World War II museum in uh, in New Orleans. I'm sure you've been there. And it really does reveal the, the gruesomeness, the intensity of that war in the Pacific, which uh, I hadn't quite understood or realized. Right. I, I wouldn't minimize either either war that you're speaking of, but I think the one in the Pacific was grittier for one of a bird. It was, uh, in many respects, a much a much dirtier war because it was not only a clash between groups of fighting men, it was more of a clash of cultures than the one in Europe uh, to some degree. The Japanese, the Asian culture was so vastly different than Western culture. We didn't understand each other before the war, which is one of the reasons you know it, it evolved into a war. And during the war, uh, the, the two cultures were diametrically opposed and that led to many interesting and difficult, bloody experiences. The man you write about in Valor, um, uh, the, the subtitle of the book is uh, One Man's Defiance and Indomitable Spirit. Is there something quintessentially American? Because when one thinks of indomitable spirit, I'm not entirely sure what that, what, what those words mean. Maybe you'll define them. One sometimes thinks of the Japanese in, in, in that sense, a defiant, indomitable culture. No, I think you're correct. There's, uh, that, that is not uh, meant to be an American attribute. In fact, uh, uh, I think that the Japanese, to a large degree, possessed it. As you are very well aware, so did and so do the British. Um, uh, it's just an absolute steadfast refusal to give up, to quit, to admit defeat. And in a war, that's one of the essential elements to winning. The book is about a man called Lieutenant uh, William Frederick Bill Harris. He was captured by Japanese forces when he was 25 years old. Why, why have you chosen, um, Dan, uh, as he said, you're a best-selling writer. Why have you chosen to, to, to write a book about uh, uh, Lieutenant William Frederick Bill Harris. I chose to write about him because, uh, as so often happens, when I'm researching one book, I come across ideas or people that I think would be interesting for subsequent books. I made a note of Bill Harris because I was I was writing Vengeance at the time, which is the story of the uh, fighter pilots that shot down and killed Admiral Yamamoto. And I came across a field Harris, a general, a Marine general who is Bill's father. And I th thought that father and son connection fighting in the same war was interesting. And when I finished, then I started to research Bill and got into his extremely striking story. Uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, his daughter had a 1500 page manuscript that Bill had written after the war. So I was able to really, truly get inside of his head and, 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 and feel, you know, to the extent you can on a page, the things that he was going through and what he was thinking because he wrote them all down. It was, a, it was actually a writer's dream, <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, easier books I've ever written. When you say you got inside his head, um, do you think you were able to do that as an ex-soldier yourself? Or can any writer get into the head of... Uh, uh, of a soldier in the midst of a terrible war like um, the Second World War on, on the Pacific Front? I think there are many fine historians who can relate the facts. Uh, I think to some degree they can empathize, but you're correct. 
as a combat veteran myself, I think it's it's much easier to get inside another combat veteran's head. You understand in a way other people can't what this person was going through, what they're feeling, and 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 the implications of all of those things. So it's a lot easier, I think, for me to write about it than it would be for somebody else. What would be the the foreignness of a the mind of a soldier like yourself or Bill Harris that people like myself who haven't been involved in war that we 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 wouldn't and perhaps couldn't understand you know that's a that's a very difficult question because there's really no way to put it into context you know people ask me all the time well what's it like to fly a jet fighter you know and and, and there's really nothing to relate you know, to in, in common everyday life that that people you know have had a similar experience they could understand understand it. And, and I'm not, I don't mean to sound patronizing or condescending. It's just, it's one of those unique experiences in life, like we've all had with different things that unless you've experienced the same thing, you're never going to really get it. And until somebody tries to kill you, and until you are forced to fight back and perhaps kill somebody to stay alive, you're just not going to truly understand what it's like. And you never know, Dan, do you, how you're going to behave as a non-combatant myself. I'm guessing I would be intensely fearful and pathetic in battle, but I guess you never can determine that, can you? Well, I've never met a Brit who was uh, pathetic in battle. They might have been fearful, <laughs> but they didn't show it. Uh, I think it's a, a national trait uh, and, and I admire it greatly. I have a lot of respect for the UK's armed forces. But you're correct, you know, you, you never really know about somebody. Uh, in certain elite fields that have very stratified layers before you get to the top of it, like being a fighter pilot, like being a Royal Marine or a Navy SEAL, it tends to weed out almost everybody who would ever have a problem. So when you finally do get to that moment where you are at, it's not a complete shock and a surprise like it is to other forms of, of fighting them. But I've seen people that, that talk the talk, if you will, during peacetime and have in fact come to pieces or gone to pieces when the uh, iron starts to fly and the shooting starts. And I've seen the flip side of that too. I've seen people that were always sort of on the fence, you know, kind of questionable average in peacetime and yet when when the war started and the fighting began they found something inside themselves and they were calm cool steely-eyed people that you'd want right beside you so you're right you you never really do it's not just though about bravery is it um it's indomitability is um takes more qualities perhaps you might tell us a little bit about uh bill harris about the man um and his story um because and of course it's given that he's a brave man but there's more to him than that isn't there yes there's more to it than than courage or bravery um bill uh, graduated from the naval academy in 1939 his father as i said was a marine general he came from a long distinguished line of of politicians jurists lawyers uh soldiers so it was more blood, if you believe in that sort of thing. Uh, and there was something in him, as I think there is in most people, as you see today in the Ukraine, 
when faced with 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 hardship and and danger and literally life or death most people will find something within themselves and they will they will survive they will try to prevail bill was on the island of corregidor at the, in the mouth of manila bay when when it fell uh, batan had surrendered a month before you know all about that and corregidor was all that was left and when the island was surrendered bill was forced to go along with it um, and he made up his mind fairly quickly after uh, a week of dysentery and then getting beaten nearly to death one night when he recovered from all that he decided i'd rather i'd rather die trying to escape than to be a prisoner of war and so he and another officer named ed whitcomb who later became the governor of indiana uh, they swam manila bay at night through the sharks off of corregidor and the rest of valor the book is that story about the next three and a half years of bill's life as he fought behind the lines he was with filipino guerrillas he tried to get alternately to china and to australia he was ultimately betrayed at pow camp in japan and that's what this story is about how much of it is also about the behavior of the japanese a uh, very good question i i put that in i put these things in on purpose and it is not a a condemnation in any way of modern japan and i do not believe in collective guilt in other words a modern german isn't responsible for what happened 60 years ago any more than a modern japanese is but i wanted people to understand the visceral hatred that the united states harbored for the japanese the imperial japanese at the time and some of the reasons that led up to that so i documented several of the war crimes bill's personal accounts of what happened to him i wanted readers to understand so they could put the war into its proper context i think too many times today we look back at those times and try to judge them by our standards through our eyes and with most things you really can't do that so i think context is very important is that a broader strategic significance to the book, or is it just a, a remarkable story? What does it tell us about the broader war battle in the Pacific? Well, in a way it does. It is in fact a very personal story about Bill, but you have to remember that there were hundreds of thousands of guys like Bill, which is one very important reason why the United States ultimately thrashed the Imperial Japanese. Uh, they sorely underestimated uh, the Americans, as as others have before them. Um, and and there were lots of guys who who weren't going to stand for it. They weren't going to let it happen. A lot of them never came back. A lot of them did. Uh, and so in that sense, there is a broader strategic uh, view of this because with with a whole army and navy and marine corps of fighting men like that there was absolutely no chance that the japanese would prevail dan is i don't need to tell you there's a an ongoing revisionist <clears throat> historiographical battle going on about america's role in the world about whether america is a good or a bad power agency in the world lots of debates about american role in 19th century domestic America, slavery, of course, indigenous Americans, Latin America, Cuba. We've done many shows about that. Do you think that 
the war in the Pacific was America's greatest military moment. I mean, you mentioned other great moments as well. I can't think of anything, and I'm not a military historian, certainly of America, but I can't think of um, a war which reflected America any better than the war in the Pacific. Is that fair? I, th I think that's I think that's fair. Um, you know, America obviously is not a perfect country. Uh, what country is? And and when I lecture or speak about you know for or against the revisionist views of history, I always ask the same question: Where do you think the world would be today without the United States? Not that we have the answer to everything, although sometimes we we tend to act like it. Um, not that our culture is superior because even though a lot of America it is, it doesn't fit the entire world. I get all that, but I think the world owes the United States a debt, especially for the Second World War. And where would the world be today if that war hadn't turned out the way that it had? What would have happened if the U.S. had lost that war or if they hadn't indeed fought in it? If for example, I don't know, there are lots of counterfactuals here. Had the Japanese not bombed Pearl Harbor and just focused on supporting the Germans in Europe? I, I think the world would be vastly different. I think if Hitler had stopped at the English Channel and said, okay, let's make peace, I, I think in the, in the name of self-preservation and without America in the war at the time, the British probably would have found a way to make peace if he'd never attacked the Soviet Union and he'd made peace with the British before America got into the war. There wouldn't be a Europe today as we know it. And in the Pacific, the same. If the Japanese had stuck with, <clears throat> with large swaths of China, which is what they had and they possessed all the way through 1945, and if they had not attacked Pearl Harbor or American interests, but simply gone around them and, and, and entered the Dutch East Indies and gotten the materials and the, the raw materials and the oil that they, they needed especially and not attacked the United States, I think the Pacific would be a vastly different area today. So the world would not be as we know it, is the short answer to your question. Dan, some people will be watching this or reading your book and thinking to themselves in a nostalgic, perhaps even sad way, they don't make guys like Bill Harris anymore. Um, but the America that Bill Harris emerged out of was an America of Jim Crow, of enormous inequality, of class struggle, a very white America. So it, it wasn't a perfect America, was it? How was it that an America that was so imperfect, so profoundly imperfect in many ways in, the, in 1941 was able to fight such a good war? Well, uh, as far as the the social implications of that that question, I, I'm not. That's not really my my ballywick. I will I will tell you that America in 1941 was America. It was what it was. You know, the Civil War wasn't that far in everybody's memory. You know, everybody, as you mentioned, <clears throat> was still on everybody's mind. But I think in the name of a in the larger in the name of the larger good, which was uh, good versus evil, black, ver not the color black, but black and white, you know, clarity and unambiguous, unambiguous, unambiguous.
ambiguous. Yeah, never mind. You know what word I mean? I'm trying to say. Unambiguous. <laughs> it was not an ambiguous. Yeah, that's it. It was not an ambiguous struggle. It was not an ambiguous, uh, fuzzy right. kind of war like all the ones that came after. So it was very easy, I, I think, for most in America to put aside the very real problem it have and solve this larger problem that was that was facing the world with the idea that when it was over, we would go back and we did go back and try to work to make things better in our own country. But we had to solve the looming evil staring everybody in the face before we could fix our own internal domestic issues. And I think that's I think that's what they did. Dan, as you suggested, I think we were all in a sense, and, and I use this word carefully, spoiled in the moral simplicity of good versus evil when it came to the Japanese and certainly the Germans. Since then, that moral complex, uh, that moral simplicity has been, as you suggested, replaced by a, a fuzziness, a complexity, a dubiousness. You yourself have participated in several of uh, America's uh, recent wars. Uh, you flew in the U.S. Uh, Air Force in the Iraq War, the Cossack conflict and the first Gulf War. Do you think there are people in the military, not necessarily yourself, who are nostalgic for a, a simpler moral age? Well, I, I don't think anybody in the military really wants to go fight. Okay. You know, I'm always kind of amused when I and it's just patriotism. I know that when I see, you know, big parades, people waving flags and they always say the same thing. Let's go get them. Who's us? Us is somebody like me. So the people that actually have to do the fighting aren't necessarily very enthused about it because they know that they can get killed doing it. On the other hand, that's what they signed up to do. That's what they that's what they believe in. Um, I, I'm not sure anybody's nostalgic, but I think what, what we would hope for which I never saw in, in my wars, you said a, a clarity of purpose. And, a, and in this country, that means a political clarity. Uh, the military doesn't decide where to go and who to fight. The politicians do that. And when they are ambiguous about it, when they, when they don't have clear-cut objectives and when they meander along for 10, 15, 20 years as they did in Afghanistan, people lose some of that focus. <clears throat> so they might look then back at a war like World War II and say that was the last time when when it was clear cut, when everybody was united. Ever since then, it, it really hasn't been. Yeah, we've done a number of shows, Dan, about the second, well, the, the, the Iraq invasion um, and the Afghan war uh, with ex-soldiers who are in, in some ways quite bitter, some of them quite prominent. Um, is that what strikes you about American adventures overseas, particularly in Afghanistan and the, 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 the invasion of Iraq, um, a political failure, which is reflected badly, not just on the military, but certainly on the men who have enlisted in the military? Oh, most definitely. Um, I, I cannot express my, uh, my, my, I don't want to say contempt, but loathing for poor political decisions. Um, you know, they're sitting safe and sound in Washington, D.C., you know, uh, don't risk anything. And yet the, a lot of them think nothing of sending young men and now women 
into harm's way. And to said earlier, we sign up for it. We know the risks going in or we should. So we really don't have a complaint coming, but it's a two-sided uh, sword, right? I mean, on, on the other hand, you want the people that are responsible for sending you in to enforce whatever policy they come up with to be clear about it, to have a good reason for it. And that, I think, is what's been lacking uh, quite, quite drastically in, in the conflicts that you mentioned. And in, it's the military that ends up holding the bag. I mean, look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan, an absolute cock up, right? It was just, just, just a fiasco. Military, our military did what I don't think any other military could do. They, they would evacuated 100,000 people by air to the other side of the world. I mean, that's amazing. And they did it with almost no planning and no notice. Uh, but that's not that's not the way that it should go down when the politicians hand us a problem like that and it doesn't go well. Look at Afghanistan right now. The military are the ones that visibly get the blame for it, even though they're not the ones who who caused the disaster to happen. So I wish there was more uh, more oversight and, and, and just more common sense in politics. But I think that's a, a common uh, Kong that uh, militaries all over the world say about their leaders. It's not it's not restricted to the United States. I assume that Bill Harris signed up. He wasn't conscripted, was he? Oh, no, Bill was an officer. Uh, officers are not conscripted. It was a war they, they... of conscription, which I think perhaps reflects why it's seen now so gloriously that everyone fought the sons of wealthy people and of poor people side by side. It seems to me, and we've done some shows about this too, one of the problems with contemporary American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is it's only the poor who fight. And as you suggested, yeah. it's the wealthy who make the decisions or the powerful that make the decisions. So it doesn't really affect most Americans, these overseas wars, which is perhaps one of the reasons why, why politicians have got away with being so irresponsible. Perhaps uh, I'm I'm not poor, and I'm not. Um, uh, I think I know what you're saying, though. Uh, and the military offers a way out. It, the enlisted part of the military offers a way out for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to move up or away or improve their their life. The military has programs for you know uh, going to college, the Yellow River, things like that. Um, I was a commissioned officer, so I'd already gone through college when I joined military, uh, as all officers do. So there is a there's a very definite class difference within the military, but everybody is a volunteer, which is the point I think you're making. Um, for whatever reason, whatever background you come from, you decide this is what you want to do. There is no draft. There is no people are doing it because they want to or because they can see an advantage to it, or perhaps they're just patriotic, as we saw in this country after 9-11. You know, that was the last time I really saw the country united, as it were, except for the brief, you know, opening days of the pandemic uh, was after was after 9-11, when this wave of patriotism kind of swept through the United States. I can only imagine what it was like after Pearl Harbor in 1941, you know, but I think it's the same kind of phenomenon. Uh, and, and, you know, so in that regard, people don't really have much of a complaint when they are in the military and bad things happen because they understand it going into it. They agreed to it. They volunteered. 
in cases where there was a that wasn't the you know that that wasn't necessarily the case if you're forced to do it well then you have a complaint and there was a draft during the second world war in this country uh i think it was probably needed to get everybody behind the war effort but there were enough people that volunteered to go fight um that i don't think we were ever seriously short of, of fighting them how's the book being received or how would you imagine the book to be received in japan do you think it'll get a translation oh yeah um uh, it, it, it'll be it'll be reprinted there. Uh, most of my I think all of my books have been uh, reprinted in Japan and other places. And, you know, I think they look at it the way that 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 I would let say the Indian Wars in my country. It's interesting. It's history. <clears throat> I wasn't part of it, so I can't be blamed for anything that happened. And I think that most modern Japanese feel that way. I had dinner with a friend the other night, another writer whose wife is native born Japanese. And that's essentially what she said. She said that the Japanese are very interested in history. The ones alive today, with very few exceptions, obviously weren't part of Imperial Japan. So to them, that's just chapter in their history that they learn about and go on. I don't think there's any rancor or bitterness about writings, as long as it's fair and open-ended, there is a revisionist movement in japan which is encouraging rethinking the war isn't there uh rethinking it as in it's not well, in terms of complete yeah complete japanese responsibility i mean it's it, it hasn't the, the 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 education the legacy of the war in japan is quite different from in germany perhaps i'm wrong but that was right. my understanding uh, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're right. And, and, you know, there's always, I mean, the going guilt, to be those... there's, you know, German war, war guilt, of course, is unambiguous and ubiquitous, which has shaped Germany since the second world war. You haven't had the same phenomenon in Japan. Um, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard. Well, you know more than me. So it's a question more than anything else. I, I, I maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. Well, I think to a large degree, the Japanese were very grateful um, that their, they ended up being grateful that their system had changed. From what I know, recognized that it was the military control of their government that more or less pushed them into that war. There were a lot of military and naval officers in Japan who were, who were opposed to fighting the United States. They knew what would happen. They'd spent time here. And they were well aware that 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 Japan could not win a war against the United States, but they're serving they're serving military officers. They have to fight. However, um, they were also I'm not going to say grateful, but they accepted the fact that that system was now gone, and they had a chance to rebuild Japan uh, under the protection of the United States and and move on into the modern world without the militaristic. Uh, clique that that controlled uh, Japan at the time. I the ones of the Japanese that I know um, still feel that way. Dan, um, let's end with bringing it up to date. Um, Bill Harris was around now. What what do you think he would think of of a very divided America? We had Mark Esper on the show, Trump's Minister of Defense, recently. Who, who I was quite impressed with. He spoke about the way in which 
the military in this country eventually stood up to Trump um, and made it clear that, the, that Trump didn't own the military, that they were independent. And many people believe, and I'm actually one of them, that, that this was the key event in the Trump presidency, the military's unwillingness to go along with him. Whether or not that shaped January 6th is another conversation. If if Bill Harris was around now, do you think he would have some pride in in the military and its ability to remain independent of civilian life? And do you think he would be concerned with an America that seems increasingly divided and violent upon itself? I, I think he would find uh, many similarities between the America of today and the America that he grew up in. It's one of the reasons I like his is because it all basically repeats itself and most of the social problems that we have today you could find especially after the first world war you know in the in the late teens and early 20s um i i think that if donald trump really expected the military to rise up and support him in some sort of coup then he's even more deranged than i gave him credit for uh that happened in our history and i'd like to think it never will the military is apolitical uh, by design and by default, and we cannot and will not uh, take part in any sort of political upheaval like that. Well, if you want a book that reflects the best of the American military and perhaps the best of American wars, uh, Dan Hampton's new book, Valor, The Astonishing World War II Saga of One Man's Defiance and Indomitable Spirit, is a marvelous read. He's a best-selling writer, and I'm sure this book will be a bestseller. I, Dan, I assume you've probably already sold the movie or television rights. It seems to me perfectly suited for uh, for visual media. Congratulations on, on, on the book. What else have you been reading recently, Dan, in addition to, uh, I'm sure you read uh, comprehensively both military and non-military history and, and, and literature. What else have you been reading recently? Well, I, uh, I reread, uh, I'm rereading the books of Nelson DeMille. He's my favorite fiction author, uh, bar none. I like to uh, exercise the other half of my brain as much as I can. So uh, I'll, I'll always try to read some poetry or a little bit of philosophy at night. I'm always a, a big fan of Khalil Gibran and Rudyard Kipling. And I'm researching a book uh, that, that got me into the poetry of John Donne. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, to do all of those things and keep somewhat of a balance so I don't tilt too far one way or the other. 